So, what, what, what is this actually here? This is just a nice political conference of like-minded donors and intellectuals. AKA, picking the next president. Selecto el presidento. That's not, that's not really how it works. Yeah, no. Hey everyone, here's a riddle for you. What do billionaire Peter Thiel, hillbilly elegy author J.D. Vance, and edgelordy art kid podcasts like Red Scare and Wet Brain have in common? Well, according to James Pogue, the author of an expansive 9,000-word article that ran in Vanity Fair last month, they're all part of a loose-knit constellation of fringe public intellectuals, conservative politicians, and independent media personalities that make up something called the new right. It's not exactly the next wave of Trumpism, though it could seem that way. On the back of an endorsement from the former president and funding from Peter Thiel, J.D. Vance recently won the Republican primary in the race for the U.S. Senate in Ohio. But James's reporting suggests that the movement is a lot more ideologically heterodox and weirder than that. Some of the players in the movement are Marxists or former Marxists, Others, including thinkers that Vance himself is taking cues from, are sketching out visions of a society that, to our ears at least, sound an awful lot like the socially conservative dictatorship. If you watched the third season of Succession, you might recall the episode where the Roy family travels to a stodgy conservative political conference in Virginia to vet the year's lineup of presumptive Republican presidential candidates. And Roman, of course, ends up taking a weird liking to a young politician with thinly veiled fascist sympathies. Fascists are kind of cool, but not really. So is that like a problem, a thing? I don't have a lot of boundaries. St. Augustine, Thomas Aquinas, Schumacher, I'll borrow from anyone. And you know, if Franco or H or Travis Bickle had a good pitch, fuck it. I'm a man for all seasons. Mm-hmm. H. Well, James's article, which is titled Inside the New Right, where Peter Thiel is placing his biggest bets, is kind of like what would happen if a left-wing reporter infiltrated that conference, fly-on-the-wall style, and that conference was actually happening in real life. The action takes place over a weekend at NatCon, a conference that James describes as a big tent gathering for a whole range of people who want to push the American right in a more economically populist, culturally conservative, assertively nationalist direction. And in a manner not dissimilar from a show like Succession, he simply presents what he observes there and quotes from the people he encounters without much in the way of commentary or editorializing. It's a deeply chilling and fascinating read, but the public response to it has been arguably just as thought-provoking. Commentators on the left of the culture war heralded it as a frightening account of a fringe movement that could, sooner than we think, represent an actual threat to American democracy. Needless to say, so do Emily and I. People on the right, including James's own sources and post-woke antagonists like Glenn Greenwald and Barry Weiss, praised it for being the rare work of journalism that engaged with its sources and their thinking in a nuanced way. Jeff Bezos also praised James's article in a quote tweet of Greenwald, which was just weird. All in all, the piece's very existence raises important questions about the fraught business of reporting on the right in post-Trump America. What are the dangers, especially in this media climate, of giving any real estate at all to the opposition's ideas? 
Conversely, what are the dangers of not engaging with them, especially when half of America has already accepted many of them as fact? And perhaps most importantly, is the media's approach to reporting on the right actually working? There are no easy answers. But as the culture war drags on and political media begins to feel like a zero-sum virality game that entrenches the right deeper into its point of view, the very fact that there aren't any easy answers feels all the more important and urgent to examine. James joins us on today's show to do just that, and share his thoughts on why paying attention to the ideas of the opposition may be ultimately in the left's best interests. We also contemplate how we ended up with a media ecosystem where events like the Supreme Court's leaked opinion overturning Roe v. Wade still seem to take the general public by surprise, and whether there's a case to be made for long-form literary journalism in pushing the political conversation forward after years of being de-emphasized in favor of commentary and hard-hitting scoops. Finally, we also discuss the role, if any, that downtown Manhattan scenesters have to play in all this. Just a quick reminder, you're listening to the free version of The Culture Journalist. To get the full episode, culture recs, essays, and more bonus goodies, subscribe for just five bucks a month at theculturejournalist.substack.com. And now, on to our show. Hey guys, we are back with James Pogue. He's a writer, essayist, and author of the book Chosen Country, A Rebellion in the West. James, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. For people who haven't read the piece, can you provide us with a brief overview of what the movement you are calling the new right actually is? And in what ways is it different from the Trumpist right, both ideologically speaking and in terms of the people involved? And in what ways is it similar? So I think... There's a lot of different ways to answer that. For somebody coming totally in cold, the thing that would differentiate it from Trumpism as such is that the new right in various ways is taking some of the critiques that you saw at the margins of Trumpism, you know, like, why do we have an American empire? Why have we offshored our industries? And we can talk about these. I'm not necessarily endorsing this take, but What are these like limits to speech and thought that we see coming from liberal America? And like, how is this all headed towards this kind of like new globalized society where, you know, American values are are disappearing, right? And they, the people on this new right tend to view Trump as a kind of like bull in a China shop to kind of break systems down, systems like globalization and things like that, that this movement is broadly opposed to. In the more nitty gritty, the new right is a really unwieldy and difficult term to use that a lot of people don't like. And in the piece, I differentiate somewhat between the different strands of it. And so traditional new right stuff would be like Rod Dreher, who wrote this book, The Benedict Option, and is like converted to orthodoxy, you know, kind of like traditionalist in a European American tradition of like defend Western Christian values. And then you have guys like Adrian Vermeule, Patrick Deneen, who are critics of liberalism writ large, not simply American political liberalism, but the concept of a society organized around the rights of an individual and the interests of an individual pursuing individual interests. These guys are much more sort of oriented around something called common good conservatism, which would be like 
we take care of the environment. We pass laws to encourage family formation. That's a big phrase of theirs. You know, Adrian Vermeule will talk about, you know, banning porn because it's a detriment to society. Things where you're taking the state and really getting involved in the lives of families and people to build a collective moral vision, which problematically is a collective moral vision a lot of people don't want. The thing that I think people responded to in the piece, though, was this other strand of kind of intellectual thought that's centered essentially around podcasts and anonymous Twitter posters who are bringing in wild strands of responses essentially to the failings of the system that we're seeing. Reasonable people can debate what those failings are, but lots of people right now feel like we're headed into a kind of catastrophe, dystopia, things like that. And so this new right, or like what you might more specifically call the dissident right, you will get anything from people like Paul Kingsnorth, who's a kind of ecologically minded Christian traditionalist who lives in Ireland and writes about capitalism as, quote, the capital M machine that is sucking up like all of our humanity and connection to nature and things like that. You'll also get like Marxist critics who until recently were on the left, like this guy Tinksorg on Twitter, who is a critic of how we've like sort of assembled a big NGO class and elite class across Western societies that have interests in globalization, have interests in keeping the technological consumer society going. And that these things are, in his view, sort of like sucking away the real economy, the quote unquote, like factory jobs, farm jobs, stuff like that. And then you have people like J.D. Vance, who are somewhat in the middle, who are influenced by both strands. And you will see in Vance's, you know, campaign announcements, inter alia in his speeches, you will see both strands sort of coming together. You can see critiques that are coming from the more like dissident, young online right. And you can also see his own sort of moral vision of the world, his own sort of like cultural takes on American society are very much formed by a kind of traditionalist American Scots-Irish conservatism. And so JD is using the kind of cultural background of the traditional American right of someone like Pat Buchanan, but he's also applying the critiques and kind of weirder online tendencies that a lot of people, you know, not to toot my own horn, but before this piece, a lot of people didn't realize were influencing people like him. Yeah. And, you know, for your reference, we're recording this the morning after J.D. Vance won the GOP primary for senator in Ohio. I'm just curious, like, demographically speaking, who are these folks? Are they white? Are they poor? Are they rich? Are they women? Are they all across the spectrum? Are they young? Are they old? So in terms of the kind of mainline new right that you might see, like my piece took place in large part at this conference called the National Conservatism Conference, which brings together the kind of think tanker types, a lot of young journalists, a lot of kind of people who have operated the margins of Republican politics for a long time and now are kind of having a moment. They're almost exclusively white. They're almost exclusively educated at elite colleges. You know, like, <laughs> I'm not applying a judgment here. It's just if you were a liberal looking at this and thinking, what is the worst possible vision I could think of, of like a new right-wing movement, you know, male-dominated, white-dominated elite guys, that is very much kind of the demographic. On the dissident right, it's much weirder. There's a lot of 
not necessarily a lot, but a number of prominent uh, black thinkers on the dissident right that I listen to or follow. There are a lot of people that you can't really tell because they're anonymous. Huge portions of the most influential figures on the dissident right, their identities are not publicly known. But like one of them that comes to mind is this guy, Indian Bronson. You kind of can tell he like lives in Miami. He's of South Asian extraction. He's like into crypto, but you don't know that much about him, right? Like I wouldn't recognize him if I saw him. And so there's this kind of weird thing that a lot of people on the dissident right will really push back on where they're like, hey, it would be really easy to call us a bunch of like white oriented people. It's just not reflected in our demographic. The truth is I wrestle with this a lot because J.D. Vance, for example, has used the phrase on a couple occasions to me personally of my people and J.D. Vance and I grew up in a similar area. That's how we came into contact. And I've told him this, I, I won't say his response because it was off the record, but I've told him this, like when he says the words, my people, like that kind of hits different. I feels like I know the game he's playing in kind of like summoning the tribal tendencies that can, can arise in politics. Uh, it feels like I'm in some weird way, like a demographic that he's hitting when he says that. And I find that on occasion, like very scary. And I've said as much to him. That said, on the online right, someone like Walter Kern would argue that it's an incredibly open and welcoming space for all kinds of people. And that's why someone like Kern, who doesn't necessarily share the politics of J.D. Vance, can operate in this space and find it enriching. Interesting. I do wonder how, like, kind of down the line strategically that's going to manifest or how they plan to maybe reconcile that with, you know, for example, like the large Trumpist wave that is so anti elite anti-people who are educated at these institutions and who come from maybe wealthier backgrounds, even though, like you said, there is space for, you know, the quote unquote weird. That just feels like antithetical to so much of what gave Trump's movement so much ground. So switching gears a little here, as we all know, it can be quite hard to place a piece of long form, you know, scene driven journalism like the one you wrote these days especially one that involves dedicating like thousands of words to a right-wing political subculture. It's something that I think many editors would shy away from covering at all, especially in our current climate. What's the story of how this piece even happened? Yeah, so this is actually, I mean, like I like magazines. I like the business of publishing. I find it interesting. So maybe I'm wrong, but I, I do think this is kind of an interesting story. Basically, like I wrote a piece many years ago about Cincinnati, where J.D. Vance and I both grew up, and it was a very weird kind of like long essayistic picture of the history of the place that for some weird reason, like kind of went mini viral, like it was an N plus one essay. But Radhika Jones, the editor in chief of Vanity Fair, picked it out and like named it one of her five favorite long reads or something. I forget. It was long reads or long form, one of those sites. She kind of flagged it and said it was one of her five favorite pieces of the year. And so I kind of had in the back of my mind, I was like, huh, like maybe there's like a space for this kind of writing in these magazines that I wasn't aware of. And then like fast forward like six years, I wrote a piece for The Baffler that like heavily criticized how magazines operate. And that was like really, really pessimistic about the future of magazines. And Radhika's, her executive editor, Claire, reached out to me and was like, 
hey, like I really responded to this critique of magazines. I know it's ironic, but maybe like you can apply some of like what you think isn't working and do it for us and do it better. And I thought that was really refreshing and cool. So she asked me to write about J.D. Vance because she's from the South and she, I think, had been really interested and compelled about what J.D. Vance was doing even before he had run for Senate. A year and a half after that, whenever J.D. like announced that he was running, I emailed them more or less immediately. And I was like, hey, what if we do something about me going back to Cincinnati, meeting J.D. Vance, and it's going to be like essayistic and weird. It's going to be personal. But like he's enough of a news hook that we can probably get this going. And that sat on their desk for eight months. I thought it was a no-go. And so I ended up doing that piece for, oddly, The American Conservative, where just randomly an editor had been a fan of a book I wrote about militias in the West. And I had embedded with Ammon Bundy, the guy who took over the wildlife refuge in Oregon. And they thought that that was like a really complicated, kind of like penetrating look at a thing that like a normal liberal journalist would have like hung out with Ammon and hated him. I didn't hate him. I found him dangerous and I found him confusing. And so I wrote a book that was kind of like a very personal look at Ammon Bundy and like my interactions with him. But the piece came across actually as this kind of like, because it was coming in a conservative magazine, the picture I drew, which was skeptical and critical of Vance, ended up like kind of going viral and like kind of going viral amongst people who were skeptical and critical of Vance. And so it became actually like, kind of more of a critique than it would have been if I had done it for the times or something where you kind of expect that. Right. And so like David Frum and David French were really into it. Like a lot of people in the center right were really into this. And so I thought that was kind of refreshing too. I thought it was cool that I could do something for this thing across the political gulf and then have it be read in good faith across the political gulf. And much to my surprise, after that came out, Vanity Fair circled back and they were like, can you redo this piece? And I said no, because I'm proud. And I was like, I don't want to be J.D. Vance's handmaiden to his rise. It made me feel queasy. So I proposed like blowing it out and doing a whole ecosystem kind of look. And they said, sure, that's really exciting. I had a contract basically like within 24 hours, just after the phone conversation, which I thought was really cool. But it was a contract for 4,000 words. It wasn't necessarily expected to be a scene-based piece. We thought it might end up being a write-around. I wasn't sure that J.D. Vance would talk to me again. I certainly didn't think that Blake Masters would talk to me. I didn't know that I was going to be able to get somewhere where I would get all these people in a room. And then I went to NatCon, and I, I started to get a sense that like I could use it as a proof of concept. So with a 4,000-word assignment, I turned around a 14,000-word draft. And basically was like, this is good enough for me to risk it getting killed. Uh, I think this is important. I think it's hitting on something people don't know about. And fuck it. Like, I'm going to try. And so I turned in a 14,000 word draft and kind of assumed that I was going to get an email soon saying, this is really interesting, but obviously we can't run it. Thanks for your work. Here's a kill fee. Obviously they couldn't run it. Why? Oh, just the infrastructure of magazines today is not really equipped to do an unexpectedly long 9,000 word scene based long form print piece. It's a very weird thing that you have to make a lot of machinery get into action to do. And the, everyone at the magazine at the very highest levels has to be on board. And there were a lot of conversations about how to play it, you know, because the usual version of this piece has a break after every three paragraphs where you cut in and you have an expert say, 
you know, hey, we want to remind everybody that these people are evil. And we made a choice to let them speak for themselves. And it became a kind of Rorschach test for people where, you know, people like Lawrence Tribe and Steve Schmidt and people in the kind of mainstream liberal media side of things read it as a portrait of looming American fascism. And a lot of people on the right read it as, hey, this is the first time we've been fairly portrayed and we're really refreshed by it. And took Vanity Fair's great credit, they allowed it to become that thing. They allowed it to be a piece of writing rather than a piece of analysis. And I think that's kind of why it worked. Can you talk a little bit about how that decision came about to let them speak for themselves? I think that what happened was that I insisted in a way that as a younger writer, I would not have been bold enough to do. This is going to sound really twee and annoying, and I apologize in advance. But like, I come from a literary background. The magazines that formed me are literary magazines. And I think this is like the great old thing that magazines used to do. You know, the, the Times can do their stuff like they did in the Tucker Carlson piece, where they bring in a lot of analysis and they bring in a lot of criticism. It's just not how I work. I try to get penetrating portraits of three-dimensional people. And yes, that's been lost, but I also think there's a tradition amongst well-read people who love long-form nonfiction who miss that and want to bring it back, at least in small ways. I don't know that it's coming back for real ever. It's probably going away, but there's a memory of it and there's a readership for it. And I think they sense that and they let me do it. I don't have any specific examples in front of me, but I remember while reading the piece that sometimes instead of like editorializing something that someone would say, you would just maybe provide a little bit of context after it or factual information that helped bring out to me as a reader on the left kind of the horror of what was being said, but without saying as much, if that makes sense. Okay, so, and we'll probably talk about this more because it gets into the complexities and, and criticisms of the piece that I've gotten. My thing, having covered the right for a very long time, is that with a lot of my subjects, I'm able to get portraits, quotes, three-dimensional pictures of people and their lives and their interests and their values and things like that, that really alarm and horrify people coming from the left. But I wouldn't be able to do that if the people I was talking to thought that I was going to personally editorialize and call them evil. So I have to like draw that hard line, even though it gets me a lot of criticism, because if we want these pictures of what's really going on, we have to kind of have someone who can get in and really see people as more than just an enemy, right? And with regard to like the editorializing that I did do, like there's also things where I like really, really passionately disagree with them on and that like come to bear factually in the sum of the stuff that they're saying. And I think that that's the point where you have to come in and you do have to do a little of your own editorializing. Like I, I remember there's a point in the piece where I talk about how everyone at the conference was talking about a looming dystopia in America, but never talked about prisons or police. And that to me seemed like an important factual omission that just like was very weird for people not to be able to bring into their worldview. And so I included that, but I tried to keep that in my voice and through my impressions so that it could still be a piece of writing instead of a piece of like banging on the door about how everyone was really bad. If you feel that, you can find that in the piece and you can find it in their own quotes. Yeah, I think that's uh, what we in the writing world refer to as the age old craft of show, don't tell. 
Exactly. Yeah, something sadly increasingly lost. So what is it about this subject that is interesting to you as someone who identifies as a leftist? Or put another way, why do you think the material that you're bringing to light here is important for leftists or anyone to be aware of and pay attention to? Well, to me, like, I think the criticisms of the left that are coming from this new right are very important for the future of a viable left. And I think they're things that are often sort of ignored in this whole like, well, these people are evil, so why do we have to pay attention to what they're saying? I mean, I'll out myself here a little bit, but like, I agree with the take that like, something has really gone wrong with quote unquote liberal society. And I don't mean liberal in the sense that like the worldview expressed by the Democratic Party. I mean, like Western individualist, consumerist liberalism doesn't seem to be working for the people that I personally know and spend time with. And like, I live in a very poor area in a trailer park right now uh, with very poor people who are very desperate and whose lives are sort of engulfed by chaos of like rising housing prices, a, a kind of social breakdown that's happening in this county, families breaking apart, drug use, things like that. So there's some of that. There's also, you know, in the sort of more college educated you know, urban friend groups that I also have, you know, there's a feeling of like being lost, lonely, superfluous, a feeling that like, you know, a lot of people who work these kind of like what people on the new right call email jobs, like don't really add much to society. I'm in my mid thirties. A lot of people I know don't have families and really want them, but like can't seem to figure out how to make that work. You know, these are questions that on some level mainstream America doesn't seem to have a lot of answers for. And the criticism of the left that comes from this side of things, the new right side of things, is that the left has become so implacably opposed to people on the right and so consumed with fighting them instead of addressing some of these questions that even though a lot of leftists like look at those issues, those precise issues and want to solve them, they feel like they have to like beat the right in a kind of climactic political battle before we can even really talk about addressing some of this stuff. And if indeed we are hurtling towards climate catastrophe or like, you know, complete corporate control of our politics and media and this sort of thing, their criticism is sort of like, we're at the end stage here. Like this stuff is happening so fast that if we just get consumed with political warfare and let all these things fester, then we're gonna be in our crisis, catastrophe and, and dystopia before we even get around to fixing that. So what is going on with the left? There's a podcast, The Trillbillies, that I highly recommend. They're Appalachian, I think pretty working class young people who are very, very left-wing. You know, they did a pod about this piece and they sounded so depressed. They were like, wow, these are things that the left should be leading the way on addressing and talking about. And it feels like we have no political power. It feels like we have no way forward. And it feels like we've been effectively marginalized by the kind of mainstream democratic, if you want to call it the establishment, to use a loaded term. After the Bernie movement, I think a lot of people on the left ended up feeling very, very depressed and ended up feeling very, very marginal and ended up feeling like there was no way forward. And a lot of people, and I kind of hinted this in this piece, a lot of people who were involved in the Bernie stuff and felt a lot of hope not that long ago have sort of shifted into this dissonance sphere. 
And so if we don't understand why that's happening, then, you know, like, how are we ever going to really have a conversation about like what that alienation is, what that depression is and how to go full? What surprised you most while you were reporting this piece? Like what what preconceptions were confirmed or challenged? Well, so I met J.D. Vance for that first piece for the American Conservative without ever having engaged with the work of this guy, Curtis Yarvin, and without ever really having talked to someone who used some of these kind of like key terms of the new slash dissident, right? Uh, like the cathedral and the regime. And what really blew my mind was like, so JD started talking about the regime to me and I had to stop him. And I was like, wait, what do you mean by the regime? Because they have this conception of like the systems of power that kind of run America as something like a regime in the Soviet Union, you know, like where you can analyze it, you can understand how power works, you can understand who holds it and how it passes from generation to generation. And I think a lot of people in like the liberal spheres, like just think of it all as kind of an organic, natural thing, right? This is just how stuff works. It's like somebody like goes to college and then they, you know, work for a Senate candidate and then they run for Senate. And it's just all very organic. And I didn't realize what a like real and deep theoretical framework they were working with. And the farther you get into it, the more your head starts to spin because they have analyses of how media power works. They have analyses of how university power works. They have analyses of what they call the PMC, the professional middle class, which is like the, the, the population that forms the substance of the regime, sort of like the party members, the party members, not the Politburo, if you were to use an analogy to the Soviet Union. They have analyses of all this stuff. They have economic analyses of it. They use Marxist surplus value theory to talk about how PMCs kind of take up surplus value that is produced by the real economy and that that's part of why the average kind of working class American has become impoverished over the last few years, right? And so this is not to endorse all of these analyses. I'm not doing that. But when you're confronted with them coming from a place of basically not knowing anything about it, you really, really have to sit down and think and analyze and and kind of engage with it because huge sections of the American right have already accepted this stuff as basically fact. And basically no one in the American media really even knew that happened. And that kind of shocked me. To give a good example, Jamel Bowie wrote a piece about whether or not the United States was ever going to have a civil war for the New York Times. And he said, well, sure, we're divided, but we don't have the kind of cultural and economic separation that America had when the South had an entirely different cultural and political economy system than the North, right? And what was interesting to me about that piece is that it could run in the Times as more or less fact without anyone noticing that actually the critiques on much of the right describe exactly that conflict. They describe a conflict between kind of middle America that has interests in reindustrializing rebuilding family farms, things like this, as implacably opposed to the kind of NGO PMC, you know, college educated class on the coast that has an interest in globalization and furthering our economic growth at basically any cost. People didn't even know that people on the right already were seeing things in such stark terms. 
And that to me was really head spinning to realize like, oh, we don't even understand the critiques that they're leveling against us. Something that was really interesting about this piece was that it was received and in some ways perceived very differently by people across this political spectrum. Can you like paint a picture for us of the range of responses you got, you know, from your sources, from other people in the media, et cetera? Yeah. You know, it's been a sort of mind bending high wire act. Like there was an element of this and I'm happy about this to some degree where you had people like Steve Schmidt or Lawrence Tribe or Jeff Charlotte, you know, and Jeff Charlotte, someone who I really respect, who were like, thank you for writing this piece. You have revealed the looming American fascism. You've revealed the threat to the Republic. Now we can act, you know, and th there was a lot of that. And as a person who is personally anti-authoritarian, I'm proud of that. I think that was really cool. There's also a response that was kind of like people on the new right felt really, really kind of seen in a way that they hadn't been. And they felt like their ideas were getting engaged with in a serious adult way that they hadn't had before. So like kind of the way that this really blew into the stratosphere in terms of going viral was Glenn Greenwald did a tweet saying, hey, this is journalism such as we haven't seen it for many years because he's engaging with the ideas and not just outright condemning. Um, and then from there, Jeff Bezos retweeted it saying he agreed and saying like that people weren't colored as a cartoon in a kind of enigmatic tweet. It was sort of weird to try to suss out like what precisely Bezos took away from the piece because much of the piece involves people on the new right critiquing a world that Bezos is in large part like the author of. And so I found that very interesting and confusing. But to go a little bit into the range of those things, some of that stuff did make me queasy where like there were people on the kind of dissonant right who were like, this is a huge W for us. This is a huge W for us. And like, I wasn't trying to give them a huge W. I was trying to make a, a piece of writing. Like I would reject the idea that like, this is in service of any political agenda. And I think that the Rorschach test element of it is kind of proof of that concept that like, they might have been enlivened by having been described as three-dimensional, but like, it also is the case that it was warning about, you know, a possible very serious danger to the Republic. So the thing that I will kind of round that answer out with that I think is really interesting is I went on Chris Hayes, uh, on MSNBC and talked about it from a left perspective. And Chris Hayes called it a great piece, which was really cool. I mean, I'm not on cable TV all the time. I thought it was a fun and interesting experience, but privately, and I won't say what he said, but Tucker Carlson tracked down my phone number and personally texted me and we had an exchange. Oh my God. And so it's just sort of proof of the concept in a way that like both Chris Hayes and Tucker Carlson could decide it was a great piece for presumably very different reasons. Yeah. It's really wild how people could see the piece so, so differently. And sorry to bring up Taylor Lorenz, but Taylor Lorenz had a tweet articulating sort of like another perspective on it and articulating what to me has felt like the de facto mindset in media when it comes to covering the right and the far right for at least since like Trump 
took office. She said, stuff like this deserves thorough reporting, not long, sceny pieces, in my personal opinion. And, you know, there's also an argument to be made, or I think that in newsrooms, people have been making the argument for a long time that this kind of approach gives real estate to the eyes of the opposition, because in doing so, you are giving them a platform. Hence, you know, some of your sources or people around them saying this was a win. How would you respond to this argument? And also, how do you account for this becoming the dominant mindset in newsrooms that it is kind of dangerous to do this? Well, so in response to the Taylor Lorenz tweet, I, I basically I reject that criticism in part because, OK, so say that someone like Curtis Yarvin, whose ideas have become to some degree foundational to the new right and even like have filtered out into the broader American right wing and even to a broader political mindset that isn't even necessarily right wing, but his ideas are very far reaching in American life today. And I think that the huge response to the piece and the, the way that people looked at it and said, Hey, this really opened our eyes to something is kind of proof that no one was fully aware of that. Taylor Lorenz might've been, but a lot of people weren't and a piece of writing that reveals Curtis as a person and a piece of writing that shows where he's going, who he's talking to, what he's like, created a world in which people could see the power of his ideas and the range that they already have. So if you think that those ideas are uniquely dangerous and must be defeated, then on some level, like you need someone who's going to go in there and show what they are and show who he is. And if you don't have that, to go to your question about the newsrooms, like there's a huge problem with that approach because you have people in newsrooms who frankly don't understand what's happening in America because they can't talk to people because they don't have sources who trust them or feel like they're worth engaging with anymore. Again, not to sound like conceited or something, but like I think that kind of like why my pieces work is because I'm having conversations with people that go a little deeper and that involve a level of trust that goes a little higher than like what people feel comfortable with, like with a random mainstream reporter anymore. And so to go back to like, you know, how newsrooms like see this stuff, well, if you don't know it's happening at all, and then all of a sudden you have a phenomenon, right? So like what, what happened with Trump? Like everyone was shocked, right? Well, if you had been engaging with people throughout that time and you've been talking about the alienation, not simply some of this stuff that people always bring in with Trump, you know, and I wrote about this a little in my first piece about Vance, like if you were looking around at what people were talking about in the state of Ohio at the time, it wasn't like, hey, our factory closed. It was like, hey, we feel disconnected from the run of American life. We feel adrift. We feel alone. We feel valueless. And so to me, it didn't feel surprising at all that Donald Trump got elected because it was kind of this howl in the void, like, hey, this sucks. This guy's going to come in. We feel like a kind of tribal loyalty to him. We feel togetherness at the rallies. Like I saw all that. And I think that there's a huge danger for newsrooms and, and for indeed for our democracy. If you can't see what the emotional and intellectual currents that are forming what their politics are, because they're going to burst out and bulge in ways that will be wildly unexpected and that our policymakers and leaders and politicians and all this stuff won't even be able to respond to because they don't know what's happening until it's already in their face. Yeah. And it seems like after Trump getting elected took everybody by surprise, 
the media sort of collectively extrapolated, I think, like from working in a newsroom myself at the time, like, oh, we didn't treat him seriously as a threat and we just sort of reported on him and, uh oh, was it our fault that he got so much attention? We have to like find a new way of covering him that is going to like make sure that we are explicitly saying this is bad at every turn or ignoring things at all. And I think it like raises deep questions about like what sorts of approaches are ultimately the most impactful if, you know, you sort of understand that the mainstream media collectively views that side as an opponent. Like when we kind of engage in things in this culture war way where even to just like look at like Taylor Lorenz's recent reporting, I don't want to, you know, undermine her reporting at all. I think she does important work. But, you know, with the recent libs of TikTok story, like she writes a report about the creator of this account and her fans say that she was doxxed and it becomes this whole huge back and forth. It totally blows up. And you kind of like sometimes wonder at the end of the day, like, who came out of this winning? Or like, is this somehow strengthening the very person that this article sought to sort of like expose and critique. And I, I don't know what the answer is, but I think it's like important to talk about this stuff at least. I, I, I was just going to agree with that. I have a really like sort of quaint and probably fusty and, and silly response to it. But like we have this kind of death match, but it's a kind of symbiotic death match, right? Where like it feels like half of what I read in the media now that presents itself as quote news is critique of other media and like that's true on the right and the left right like every time you watch tucker it's like 50 percent just him playing cnn clips and being like this sucks you know and then you know the times will do like a massive expose that's just media criticism of tucker in turn and both of these things are sort of feeding themselves into what feels like a kind of apocalyptic death match that really neither side can win and that was the thing that happened with Trump. And a lot of people admitted that later where they, they fed off of like kind of the ratings and all that stuff that he gave them rather than like, wow, this is a real moment of crisis in belief in the American system. This is a real moment of crisis in belief in like whether the trends that we've been following up until 2016 are things that we were bringing people along with. And it turned out that actually like for large sections of the country, they weren't. And that caught people totally off guard. And so this is my quaint take. Like there's a role for literature. Like there's a role for like complexity and like kind of uncomfortable spaces in the middle where you're describing how people are responding emotionally to politics, how people are engaging on personal levels in the systems of power because those are the places where people can read and come to their own conclusions i just think it's like such a tragedy that like complicated literary kind of down and dirty hands in the mud understandings of like how things really work in the world have been to some degree excised from our media you're either good or you're bad and that applies to both sides this is not a criticism of quote unquote the liberal media it's a criticism of how we operate as a society and I, I'm just not convinced that that can go on for very long and have us survive. And you can also see something like the big New York Times expose about Tucker 
as, you know, it, it was a win for the New York Times in the sense that a lot of people who, you know, see the world in the way the New York Times did thought it was a really powerful story and maybe caused some people who hadn't been following him that much, like crystallized their understanding of the evils of what he is doing. But then you could also say that, like, I have family members who are conservative and watch Tucker every night and their response to it was just like, oh, he's being attacked. Like, he's awesome. He just responded to it in a tweet where he, you know, was like laughing and held up the paper and that it could be like emboldening. Well, so here's, I'm not 100% sure what the age range is here, but here's a statistic that I think raises a lot of questions about the approach that liberal newsrooms have taken in recent years, which is that I think between ages of 18 and 34, or even possibly between the ages of 18 and 55, Tucker Carlson is the most popular television host among Democrats. For young Democrats, he's more popular than CNN and MSNBC. And I think that points to some very serious questions about how the kind of liberal media version of things, which I, so now I will criticize the liberal media, this kind of version of things where you present, we are on the right side of history. We are right about everything. If you disagree with us, it's disinfo. If you disagree with us, you are capital B bad. It just turns a lot of people off and it turns people to places, to use another term that comes up in the piece, it turns people towards places that feel more heterodox and open. And Tucker has provided that for a lot of people. Like it's entertaining. It feels subversive. It feels exciting to watch Tucker in a way that it doesn't feel exciting to watch Brian Stelter, right? And that, you know, that's raising, I think, a question that people are really going to have to confront because this kind of like, if you want to call it the establishment worldview, the kind of mainstream worldview, whatever, it seems to be losing adherence, like at a very, very fast rate. And you don't have to apply a value judgment to it, say that that's probably a problem. I really appreciate what you were saying about sort of the complexity that pieces like this lend to the conversation. I think so much of the media reaction and the, you know, Taylor Lorenzes of the world, I think they are motivated a lot by a kind of subconscious existential crisis that media is going through for, for relevance in the conversation, that it, there's suddenly like this underlying means of having to take a corrective measure that really, I think, confuses or blurs the entire notion of journalistic responsibility. I'm curious, what do you think we're losing in the absence of the complexity of the more embedded in C2 journalism of this piece and like we've been talking about? You know, it's a political loss. The loss of complexity allows for very simple narratives to take hold. So to take it away from like a criticism of the liberal media or whatever, like look at the conservatives response to this and look at them to some degree, like being forced to confront the fact that not everyone coming from a, like a leftist mainstream magazine writing background, like I do, like not all of us are fucking evil, right? That in itself is like a proof of concept, right? That in itself is a proof that there's some value to this because you're forcing them to confront like, oh, huh, like maybe some of the stories we've been telling aren't fully true, right? If this piece can get into Vanity Fair, then maybe these people that we've set up as enemies of, of the American nation are not actually all evil themselves. 
And so I think it works in two directions. And I don't want to just put all of my criticism on the liberal media for that front, right? That said, getting into the nitty gritty of publishing, now I'm really going to throw shade, but like magazines aren't that good anymore. Like long form writing isn't that good anymore, in part because like editors don't trust people to do this stuff. They don't trust people to be writers. They trust people to be reporters to some large degree. They trust people to take on big investigations. But like they want their stuff to get clicked on. They want their stuff to be the kind of conversation driver. And the conversation driver is always going to be essentially apocalyptic. Is it a question of trust, though, or is it more of a question of clicks and, you know, attention spans? Well, I think there's two responses to this, and this really gets into publishing business. But yes, it's clicks and stuff, but we also have to get into the history of long-form writing and the decline in money and the decline in kind of like the number of writers who can do serious writing because we haven't been cultivating those people. We haven't been paying those people. What we have done across, you know, higher level magazines is you have a certain number of very talented, very effective editors like David Remnick, like Bill Wasek, who's now at the Times, who have developed essentially technologies for figuring out narrative approaches. And so like they figured out how to edit a feature into a form that will work even when like to throw a little shade, not at a person, but just at this whole ecosystem, even when someone who's not a natural writer is doing the work. And those things are so effective and they're so consistently good, right? And then you get into the kind of broader long form ecosystem of narrative stuff that, you know, a few years ago was like the big thing. And like you had a lot of people who weren't really interested in making a piece of literary writing that was like dirty and complex and carried a very unique singular voice. They really wanted to tell a good story, right? And we developed technologies that allowed us to do that. Now, I think there is a trust issue and just a habit issue among editors where they'll see something weird and they lack both trust in the reader and the writer to carry off the kind of like, you know, what you might call essayistic uh, literary journalism that was ascendant in the United States in like the 1970s and 80s and things like that. The great, great golden era of American periodical writing. You're going to be hard pressed to find institutional support for that because it can go wrong really easily. And like it can get mocked on Twitter or it can just get ignored. And so you've put up 10,000 bucks, 15,000 bucks, 30,000 bucks for a piece that might get 15,000 reads. Like you're just not going to do that. I do think that there is a totally apolitical structural kind of trust issue. Like I said, like I drive a 25 year old truck. I made last year $25,000. You know, there's $6 gas here. I pay $1,500 to live in a trailer. This life is really hard and we don't support people doing it. And like, you have to be basically a psychopath to want to do. You have to want to do this so badly that you could not possibly do anything else. Because if you could do something else and be happy, you're not going to be able to succeed because it's such a hard, brutal life, unless you were born rich. And to round this out, That creates another problem because the people who get in and often do succeed at higher levels in this business tend to be rich and like they're still riding their parents' health insurance and they have a house that they can go hit up and like rest and and finish up a piece and stuff like that. And what that means is that you're kind of encouraging a group of people who don't necessarily know that much about 
the nitty gritties and the hardships and the things that a lot of Americans experience, you're not bringing those people in because it's just too fucking hard to survive. And I think that's a big problem. I'm not the first person to raise this criticism, but it's part of why American journalism just feels disconnected from American life to so many people. This goes back to what we were talking about, sort of the media approach to cornering the right and whether that's yielded its intended effect. Why are we still taken by surprise when something like the Roe versus Wade Supreme Court leak happens? Ooh, that's a good question. I will confess to not being surprised about that. But looking at life in like literally where I am right now, which feels like a kind of bleeding edge of a breakdown in American society. The militia here controls the county government. The people here who are involved in politics are implacably divided in a way that is not just Democrats and Republicans. It's kind of like, you are our enemy, you must be beaten. Like the social norms have broken down. People like live in tents basically everywhere. I, I just say that because like, when you look at higher level American politics, like the actual truth, if once you're in the system, there is no shared set of values anymore. There's no shared set of like, we are working to do good governance and operating in good faith. I think that that has been lost. I don't know that we can get it back. I hope we can. But like, when you talk about the Supreme Court thing, like the Supreme Court was sort of this last bastion of, of quote unquote norms and last bastion of like, you know, these people aren't on Twitter. They're not doing all this stuff. But you know that it's coming. Like you saw that with Clarence Thomas's wife getting kind of in the muck of all this weird, like Republican funding stuff and January 6th stuff. And you thought like, oh, right, it's creeping in. Like this craziness is creeping in. To keep it in, in kind of the realm of journalism a little bit, there is not really a lot of difference between media and politics. And media is a power base and there's a cross-pollination between media and people operating at the highest levels of our government that I think basically cannot be overstated at this point. And so the idea that that would overtake the Supreme Court to me seems like absolutely unsurprising. It, it's almost surprising that it hadn't fully colonized it yet. And I think at a certain point, like if we don't get a handle on how particularly Twitter has driven this kind of like psycho brained, constantly paranoid, constantly divided, constantly going viral kind of thing that people are experiencing, we're never going to get a handle on that. All politics is going to be this gigantic kind of like weird media performance where leaks and internal conversations and behind the scenes maneuvering that puts people on cable and elevates them in various ways, which happened to some degree with J.D. Vance, let's be clear. Like, like J.D. Vance won because Tucker decided he was the guy. And like, if we don't see how that's happening and we don't find some way to address it, like there is no hope for this governing system. Yeah, and it's also crazy how probably for like the lay democratic spectator, even for myself in a way, this felt like a rug pull moment. This felt almost akin to Trump getting elected, whereas like, wait, I had heard some rumblings about this, but 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 wait, this is actually happening. 
And like, why didn't I see this coming? I don't know. I don't, I don't know why that was. So talking about the confluence of political power and media power in the piece, it seems like this force that you're referring to plays a very, very central role in the rhetorical moves that figures like Curtis Yarvin are making. I could almost see this being the argument that maybe would cause somebody who is on the left to grow interested in this because it's articulating an argument that we don't see a lot of on the left, right? And I almost worry that this argument could almost feel like a gateway drug to some of these ideas that are, to me, very frightening. It's like, oh, okay, so like this, I, this idea of the cathedral, I can imagine someone saying like, that's a pretty compelling way of articulating what is going on. But then you have to get from there to like, oh, okay, we want what is basically a fascistic state with uh, a CEO dictator type figure. It almost reminds me of like, I've done some reporting on cults, for example, and they'll often be like a critique of the establishment that kind of gets people interested in what they have to say in the first place. And then they slowly feed you these ideas that are, you know, not necessarily related to that initial critique, but they kind of get you in using the critique. Yeah. I mean, so... Let me turn that around because I agree very much that like the media critique is, is very much like how people come to this, almost everyone. And also like, I agree very much for people who aren't fully familiar with Curtis Yarvin's thought, like Curtis will say offhand that he considers the New York Times to be a fourth branch of government, essentially. It's very much a part of how he's looking at American power. Um, the New Yorker being another sort of like temple of American power. The thing, though, that I would say about the cult thing that is really interesting is that when you get exposed to Curtis's thought, what he's suggesting is not, hey, come join my cult. What he's suggesting is you're already a part of a cult. Wake up and see it. And that's the part that starts to blow people's minds because, you know, there's I forget who it is exactly, but there's the classic definition of ideology, right, is that it's it's the water that the fish swims in. And when you have, for example, like a system that's about to fall apart, the fish start seeing the water. And so like, you know, in Russia, you're like, well, we always had a czarist system. We've always had a czar. This was good. And then all of a sudden people are like, wait, but like, this is all just like weird. Like this doesn't have to exist. And then you have a revolution and then you kind of have a new system and everybody's like, this is just how things are. And then, you know, by the mid 80s, people were like, ah, wait, this is just weird. Like, what is going on? And Curtis will say, you know, hey, my job, he said this in the piece, my job is to wake people up from the Truman Show. And the natural effect of waking up from the Truman Show and being like, wait, like, we didn't actually have to have globalization. We don't have to have consumerism. We could all be farmers. Like, you can go in a million different directions. Walter Kern said something to me about Curtis that I think is true, which is that, like, his greatest strength is as an analyst of media and historian of the American left. And I, I know I'm talking a lot for Walter Kern, but it's because I think he's a really interesting person in all this. He very much believes that like, hey, this water surrounding us fish 
like needs to be described and is probably bad and to some degree probably needs to be discarded in some way. Like this, this governing ideology that we just like sort of shared that Curtis is trying to wake us up from. Like, I think he, he agrees that th that's sort of a problem, but he doesn't agree. And he said this in the piece, so I think it's okay for me to say now, like he doesn't agree with Curtis's prescriptions, right? The problem though, at least such as I see and experience it, is that when you look at Peter Thiel, who's obviously very influential in this and to some degree holds the money, not as much as everybody thinks, he did not create this out of whole cloth with his money. But when you look at Thiel, when you look at J.D. Vance, when you look at Blake Masters, like their prescriptions do kind of pretty much seem like Curtis's prescriptions. So you're taking this kind of like intoxicating, new and interesting way of seeing the world that I think is in many ways like really valuable. And that's why people respond to it. But you're also taking the kind of darker stuff that I personally don't like that someone like Walter Kern doesn't like. On the other hand, though, like J.D. Vance, who's like more or less, if you listen to his podcast interviews, more or less an openly Yarvanite guy, he just won a Senate primary and like is probably going to be a United States Senator. So like at the upper echelons of it, it does start to be like, oh, this might get really real. These ideas might really like start to come to bear in our political life, like a lot sooner than anybody really thought. Yeah, which is definitely to me very frightening. I want to also point out, you said like, Yarvin says like, all of this is a cult. The thing you're swimming in is a cult. That is a rhetorical move that cults often make in my reporting and in my research. Yeah, that's an interesting point. I actually hadn't thought of that. I think it's a device that can weaken people's defenses. And it's like very compelling, or it can be very compelling. And I think it's a device that we've also seen a lot on the right, which is the tactic of like accusing what your opponent is accusing you of doing back at them. This is maybe like a little bit like earlier in the progression of this collapse of discourse, but the way that the right would accuse the left of doing exactly what the right was doing almost as like sort of a red herring move. Tucker Carlson is definitely an example of that. Like when you watch Tucker Carlson you can tell that like studied these rhetorical moves that the left makes and uses them against the left all the time. It's like one of the main things he does. Yeah. And Andrea, I think the biggest of all that is going to have a lot of bearing in ways that are going to be probably pretty wild in our politics going forward is this kind of question of authoritarianism, right? Because like what was interesting about this piece and also just like about the conversations that are happening on Twitter in general is like, the liberal mainstream looked at Elon Musk buying Twitter as like a step towards an authoritarian state. The right looked at him buying Twitter as a kind of like resistance against left-wing authoritarianism. And the authoritarianism that people are identifying is very different. So Curtis is identifying an authoritarianism that is like media deciding what you're allowed to say and think, people policing your speech on Twitter, people saying that you're bad, nationalist, evil, if you disagree with like whatever particular policy prescription is being put forward by liberal America and liberal America looks at the right and says like, oh my God, you guys want a dictator or you guys want Trump who's authoritarian like Putin, et cetera. And you're basically throwing the same epithet back across the chasm at each other in a way that's deeply, deeply unproductive and also allows people to basically 
dig into their view of it because everything the other side does in response confirms their view that the other side is authoritarian. And I don't know how to get out of that trap. I wish I did. Right. Not just unproductive, but amplifying and polarizing and flattening. That's it for the free version of this episode. Up ahead, we talk about the role of downtown Manhattan's art kids scene in all of this, why it's important to pay attention to figures like J.D. Vance, regardless of whether he wins, and hope and possibilities for how we can still write democracy's ship. Get all that and more by subscribing for five bucks a month at our Substack. This episode of The Culture Journalist was produced and edited by Emily Friedlander and me, Andrea Dominic. Our theme music is by Mark Donica. To read James's piece and more of his work, head to our Substack. That's theculturejournalist.substack.com. If you like what you're hearing, give us a share or leave a review on Apple Podcasts to help support independent journalism.